You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, I would like to invite you once again to turn open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And this week, we are in Matthew 13, looking at verses 24 through 43. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. So turn on over there, and then feel free to follow along with me as I read our passage for us. Beginning in verse 24, Matthew writes, And Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, two agencies that seem to capture a lot of attention in the United States are the Secret Service and the FBI. Maybe they have uh, captured your interest. You really like to watch maybe a TV show that involves one of those agencies. As you know, both of them focus on protecting national security, but in different ways. The Secret Service, by protecting important political figures like the president and his family, and, of course, important buildings like the White House. 
and the FBI by gathering intelligence and conducting investigations. But due to the nature of their work, as you can understand, both agencies are highly secretive. So it's rare that you ever get to learn about their activities unless, of course, you work for them and are on the inside. I'm not sure if you've thought about this or not, but uh, in many ways, this is similar to the kingdom of heaven. You see, for most people in the world, they don't think about the kingdom of heaven, but it is certainly at work behind the scenes at all time. And even more, those who belong to the kingdom possess secrets we know that no one outside of it happens to have access to. And this has always been true, but as of late, it has been especially interesting for us to witness this as demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 13. Now, I've mentioned this before, and you'll continue to hear me say this in the coming weeks, but Matthew 13 marks a very important turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Consider again what happened immediately before we came to Matthew 13. To our dismay, we saw that Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And this happened first among the common folk in chapter 11, But then it happened again in chapter 12, specifically with the religious leaders. And you might remember the very moment that this uh, perhaps uh, was the worst, because it was quite dramatic. In Matthew 12, verse 22, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. and Jesus healed him. And then this is what the religious leaders had to say. They said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So the religious leaders, in essence, went as far as to accuse Jesus of being a demon himself. And this was absolutely stunning. It was absolutely shocking because nothing could have been further from the truth and There was a mountain of evidence to prove otherwise. There was a mountain of evidence to prove that he indeed was the Messiah. So what happened? Well, ultimately there comes a moment when Jesus decides to kind of change his ministry methods to an extent. And he comes to this place of deciding that he is no longer going to teach, say, in straightforward ways among mixed crowds, because it's clear nothing he says or does will change Israel's obstinance. They have rejected him, and they will continue to reject him. And so this is what Jesus does. He turns to speak in parables whenever he is in public, which is why we read in verse 34, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this is new for Jesus. Again, we talked about this. We look at the Sermon on the Mount. We see him teaching in a very straightforward kind of way, a very didactic kind of way, a very plain-spoken kind of way. Now this is going to be different because now among the crowds, he will only speak in parables. And the disciples... They know this, which is why they ask him in verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? Why, Jesus, when you're out in open-air settings with the multitudes, with the mixed crowds, do you teach in parables? And what did Jesus say? Well, he ultimately gave two reasons for speaking in parables. I won't 
re-preached last week's message. That's what we focused on then. You can go back and download that message if you weren't with us. But ultimately, he gave two replies to that. First, he said, he teaches in parables to reveal secrets about the kingdom to those who are his true disciples. But secondly, he also does this to conceal secrets from those who reject him. And this, then, is what makes Matthew 13 so unique because it's a new section in Matthew. I mentioned it's the third discourse of five in the Gospel of Matthew. But it's also a new stage in Jesus' ministry. So from this point forward, Jesus will teach the disciples when they're in private settings still in very straightforward ways. He's still going to answer their questions. We notice they ask him a question, particularly about the first parable, about the wheat and the tares when they're in a private setting. But as far as when he's in public, he's only going to teach in parables. And when he does this, again, two things will happen. First, the disciples are going to gain greater insights about the kingdom of heaven. But for those who aren't his disciples, they won't learn anything because they won't have spiritual ears to hear. So that is what happened. And keep in mind, therefore, then that everything from here on out is moving towards the cross. Everything is moving towards the cross. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus talks about, is moving him closer and closer towards the cross. Israel's leaders have rejected Jesus. Israel's people have rejected Jesus. And so because of this, what does Jesus do? It's now going to be a time of preparing the disciples for what life will be like, especially once Jesus hands off the baton of ministry to them. And he wants to make sure before he does this that they have the right expectations for how God will use the church and how God will use them. Because after all, keep in mind that every single one of them, they had expectations about the Messiah, right? We've kind of talked a bit about those expectations in many weeks of preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. You see, they all had ideas of what the Messiah would be like, but most of these ideas, many of uh, these ideas were wrong, or at least the timing of them was wrong. So here's what Jesus has to do. He has to reorient their thinking. He has to deprogram them and reprogram them. He has to get them to embrace things that they've never considered before, particularly about how God will establish his reign on earth. And so that's what's entailed in all of these parables. They're about the kingdom. They're all about mysteries of the kingdom. Things that God is making clear that haven't been necessarily made clear in the past. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first parable in Matthew, the parable of the sower. Then last week, as I said, we looked at why Jesus teaches with parables. And now this week, we're going to look at three more parables. But as we do, just remember that all these parables are connected to help us understand what to expect, particularly during the age of the church and what the role of the church is within the redemptive plan of God until the time when Jesus ultimately comes again to establish and consummate his perfect reign. That said, here's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to provide three lessons about the development of the kingdom of heaven. Three developments, 
three lessons about the development of the kingdom of heaven. And one thing you'll notice is how each lesson, it's connected to a parable. So we have three lessons and three parables. In total, there are seven parables in Matthew 13. Again, we've already covered one. So after today, we will have three left to go. Three lessons about the development of the kingdom of heaven. So what is the first lesson? The first lesson today is this. The kingdom progresses with conflict, but ends with victory. The kingdom progresses with conflict, but ends with victory. Now notice in this first parable how four characters are mentioned. We have a sower, servants, an enemy, and reapers. The sower, of course, is the master. But the conflict all revolves around one problem, and what is it? It is that of weeds being found in a wheat field. So a person goes out to plant a wheat field. That's how the story begins. The sower goes out and sows a field. And as the wheat grows, everything is looking great. The farmer's encouraged. The servants are encouraged. Looks like it's going to be a great harvest, right? That is, at least until one day when the head of the grass finally is produced. And when this occurs, the servants go out to check on the master's field. And what do they notice? All of a sudden now, there's panic as it becomes clear that weeds are scattered in among the wheat field. Now, some might wonder why it takes so long to notice the weeds, why they didn't appear right away. But this would seem to be explained by a specific kind of weed known as darnel. Darnell was common in the Middle East, and it looked completely identical to wheat until a grain of, uh, you know, a head of grain appeared on the stalk of the plant. But that takes a while because it's one of the last stages of development, right? So it wasn't like, you know, the experience we have when we walk out into our yard and we look at a dandelion and we're like, well, that doesn't belong there. We're definitely going to be spraying that thing with Roundup, right? And it's just obvious. It's got like this yellow bloom on it. It's got these big broad leaves. It's stretching up and over the rest of your grass, right? The kids think it's pretty, but you know it's not because of what it is. It wasn't like that. It wasn't obvious. Wheat and Darnell, in fact, were so identical that during the time of the Roman Empire, there were people that would would sneak into their neighbor's fields as the story goes, right? As we learn from what Jesus is saying, and they'd put this darnel in the wheat field. And uh, what it ultimately would do was so devastating that it could bankrupt a person's family and destroy their livelihood. So the Roman Empire actually criminalized. They had a law against this act. And um, Darnell was especially devastating because it wasn't just a weed, but it was a poisonous weed. So once in the field, it would contaminate the entire crop and it would make it good for nothing, unable to be eaten, of course, unable to be sold in the marketplace. Not long ago, I actually heard of a similar act of defiance in Sioux Falls. Maybe you heard about this. One day, there was a lawn care worker who was uh, a bit disgruntled with his boss, so he came to work and he decided to put Roundup in a tank of chemical that would later be used to treat a whole bunch of yards for dandelions. 
And of course, at the time, no one knew what he was doing because Roundup looks a lot like many other chemicals. But of course, within days, the act became known because all throughout Sioux Falls, all around these neighborhoods, there were a lot of lawns that were burnt brown to a crisp. Jesus, in his day, people would do the same, but with Darnell. And given this problem then, when the servants come and they notice all of these weeds, what happens? Well, there's a panic. And then they run to their master and they say, well, master, what, what are we going to do? The master's advice well, we're just going to let these things grow together. Their immediate impulse was, you want us to go get the weeds? Thankfully, the master in his wisdom said, no, no, no. If you do that, you're going to uproot the entire crop. You're not going to be able to get the weeds without ripping up the wheat. So we're going to let them both grow together until the time of harvest. And, and then at that time, we'll gather up both of them, we'll burn their weeds, and we'll put the wheat into the barn. So that's the story. Now let's consider the characters as Jesus explains them in verse 37. Jesus says that the sower is the son of man. Jesus, then, is the sower. Remember, that's one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself as the son of man. Some uh, you know, think that's a, a title that is one of humility. He's one that of course, is God who takes on human flesh. It's actually more of a, a title of divinity because in Daniel we hear about the Son of Man. Uh, the Son of Man is uh, a title of power. So Jesus is the sower. The field is the world. Keep in mind, the field is the world. The field is not the church. Some have interpreted this text to say the field is the church. The field is not the church. It's very clear that the field is the world. The good seeds are Christians, the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are non-Christians, sons of the evil one. And lastly, the enemy, the one who planted the weeds, is the devil. He's the one that snuck in when no one was awake and put this terrible seed in the wheat field. So those are the characters, and therefore, what is the point? Well, certainly we could focus on a whole lot of things. But to me, big picture is, the primary thing is, that... While the kingdom of heaven develops, here's what the disciples can expect. They can expect that there is going to be ongoing conflict and war and hostility until the second coming of Christ. Let me say that again. They can expect that there's going to be ongoing conflict and war and hostility until the second coming of Christ. Particularly because of whom? Satan. Satan is God's enemy. Satan has a malicious desire to destroy all that he can in the world. Now, this has always been true. We know this goes even all the way back, as far back as the Garden of Eden, when he tempts Adam and Eve to sin against God. But it seems to me that the disciples probably especially need this reminder because they're going to need to have the proper expectation they're going to need to know what to expect when they're sent out into the world to reach people with the saving message of the gospel. And interesting enough, when you look at these parables, it's almost like in many senses they build on each other. Remember again, two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower, right? And of course, what was the point of that message? The gospel goes out into the world. The truth is preached, but only 
one soil out of the four produces a crop. So it was a very evangelistic message, and it had an encouraging side to it, even though only one uh, you know, soil actually develops into a crop. The fact is that it produces a, a great plenty. It yields, of course, Jesus says, even some a hundredfold, right? So, so the, the gate is narrow. Few will enter it. Few will turn to Christ. But those that do will produce a magnificent field for Jesus Christ. So now we come to this one. And we've heard about missions then and the gospel being preached. But again, the seed is different because the seed is no longer the gospel because the seed is actually the people. So it seems to me this is still has missions as its focus. This is about Jesus sending his people out into the world. And he expects that his disciples will make a difference. He's going to use his people in the world. But of course... One thing that Satan wants to do is he, he wants to do everything he can to prevent God's people from, of course, making that difference. And he wants to do everything he can to undermine the church's work. And so he seeks to disrupt this work by planting what seems to be false Christian lookalikes among the good seed. Now here's the deal. We know that anyone who rejects Jesus is ultimately a son of the evil one. But the fact is that there are some sons of Satan or children of Satan that look much more like wheat than others, right? And these are the ones that Jesus wants the disciples to be especially aware of, not simply those who, say, live worldly lives, but those that profess to be Christians yet deny Jesus by their lives. You may have noticed, though, that this is a constant thread in Jesus' ministry. He is constantly calling us to careful discernment, both about those that influence us as well as those that surround us. As an example, we could think about Matthew 7. There, Jesus says in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So be careful about those who teach you and put themselves out to be leaders. But then just after that, what does he say in verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus knows that there are going to be many imposters out in the world. Many people who can put a good front and present themselves to be Christians when indeed they are full of dead people's bones. And keep in mind why the disciples needed to hear this. I think it's because by and large, they all expected that when the kingdom came, it was going to come swiftly. And when it came, it was going to come with pomp and circumstance and that God was just going to defeat all of his enemies. He was just going to trample them out. So, in other words, it was going to be all triumph, all victory, all achievement, all freedom, and nothing else. That's what they thought. But what does Jesus say? That's not how it's going to be. That's not how it's going to be because there is a war, and it's going to last longer than you think because there is an enemy, and his name is Satan or the devil. Friends, we have an enemy 
we have an enemy who hates everything that Jesus Christ stands for. If you're a Christian, you have an enemy that hates everything you stand for because of who you are connected to. And we are told that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're also told that he disguises himself as an angel of light. And he does everything to oppose the work of God and certainly to oppose the work of the gospel in preventing people from believing in Jesus and blinding them from the truth. Now, the fact is we're thankful that God is stronger than him, but still the point is clear. The kingdom will come, but not without great, great conflict. And this has always been so, and it will continue to be so until the day when Jesus Christ returns Yet as much as we know this, it's still kind of hard to embrace that, isn't it? Every morning, I'm sure, you guys, you wake up, you look at the news, and your heart is, once again, just weary. And you're just thinking, when is this going to be over? Why is it that every day we have to hear about some new mass shooting? Why does it have to be about some corrupt politician? Why do we need to be hearing about a war overseas? It just makes one weary. But friends, this is the world we live in. It is a world filled with wickedness and evil and violence. And this is how it will continue to be until Jesus Christ returns. It's always been hard for Christians, though, to accept this. You might be familiar with Augustine. He was one of the greatest theologians of the early church. In fact, he, he once wrote a book known as The City of God. And in this book, one of the things Augustine uh, strove to do is to help Christians understand how they are citizens of two different cities. By spiritual, by physical birth, they're citizens of an earthly city, of course, but by spiritual birth, they are citizens of of a heavenly city, the church. And one of the things that Augustine points out is how there are many times when the earthly city looks much more powerful than the heavenly one. And that's true today, isn't it? We look at the church, we look at us, we're gathering here right now, and I don't know how many there are, about a hundred of us or so, maybe fewer. And we can leave today and leave the church and we can think of all sorts of other events or gatherings that are taking place. Maybe you turn on your TV and you see a baseball game and you're thinking like, man, 80 to 100 people, they fit in just like a couple of rows and you have a stadium filled with people and they're all coming together celebrating this, this game, right? That's gonna be over within a matter of a couple hours and people will just forget about it and move on. We see more enthusiasm about the things of the world by far than enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. And so we can have these times of discouragement. We can go, oh. Or, or sometimes we do the what if thing, don't we? Like, what if people gave as much money to putting this building on a university campus as to doing something for the church, what things could look like? Or give to this you know, Christian organization that's helping orphans or whatever it might be. But friends, here's the thing. We should expect this. This is what Jesus said life is going to be like in a fallen world. 
That said, we ought to be encouraged, though, because what is ultimately going to be the result? Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, look at verse 41. We're told that there's going to be a day when the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So fascinating because you think about it. If, if we are discouraged in our own day, and sometimes we look at this earthly kingdom and we feel like we're just so overpowered, you have to think how much truer was this in Jesus' day, right? Think about the disciples. I mean, there they are. They're, they're part of just this small band of followers of Jesus. Just this little community, little area. Sure, more and more people are following Jesus, but still, by and large, they look like a bunch of radicals. Like, what are these people doing following this rabbi? And the whole time, they're expecting that Jesus is going to take the throne, and they're going to be his right-hand men. They're going to be able to just kind of grab on to Jesus' coattails and ride him to success. And yet the whole time, Jesus is saying, mm, it's not how it's going to be. I'm going to be denied, and I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be crucified. And their hero at the end of this thing, the guy they expected to take the throne, the guy who they expected to crush his enemies, what happens to him? His enemies crush him. Jesus, though, prepares them for that moment because he's saying, this is how it's going to be. It's not just going to be all, you know, very abrupt and, and suddenly how the kingdom of God comes. Like, look there, and it happens, right? Christians are going to continue to live side by side with the world. And at the end of this thing, Jesus will get the victory but it won't be until he returns. So here's my question for you. Have you embraced the battle? Are you taking up the sword of the word? Are you taking up the shield of faith? Are you, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, putting on the full armor of God? Or are you getting comfortable in this world? Is this your home? Or is your home with Christ? Friends, be careful. For this world is passing away. And for the present time, we are called to be active in this world, and we've got a great mission in front of us, and that is to continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and the free offer of salvation to all who believe. So that's the first lesson for today. Lesson one, the kingdom progresses with conflict but ends with victory. Now let's consider our second lesson. Lesson number two, the kingdom starts small but grows enormous. I thought about having fun with this point and saying the kingdom starts small but grows humongous just so I could have the word humongous in my first sermon. Lesson two, the kingdom starts small but grows enormous. Consider the parable. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So a moment ago, we learned about a field. Now we learn about a specific plant, a mustard plant. And here's the analogy. Jesus explains how the mustard seed is a pretty remarkable seed. 
Um, because nothing else goes through quite the transformation that this seed does. It begins as the smallest of all the garden plants, but eventually becomes so big that it's like a tree. Now, some might take issue with Jesus saying it becomes a tree or it is like a tree because, of course, we know that mustard plants are like a giant bush by the time that they're all formed. But don't be taken back. It's just that Jesus was saying that they're going to grow so big they're going to possess certain tree-like properties. And it does. Interesting enough, the fact is that in a single season, a mustard bush can grow in excess of 10 feet tall. That's just in one growing season. They can even grow as tall as 15 feet So they can become very, very large. And of course, when they do, they provide a great place for birds to come and rest. Now, some try to read into the birds in this passage. And they, you know, because we talked about the parable of the sower and how we've got these birds that come, right? And they take the seed. But we can't read into those kind of things. Jesus gives us the explanation of the parable. He obviously doesn't touch on the birds and attach any significant meaning to them. So it seems most reasonable to conclude that the only reason that the birds are mentioned is, again, to emphasize the size of the mustard tree. This, this is a big bush, and now it's so big that it's even strong enough to hold up under the weight of a bird making a nest in its branches. All right, so we are on the east side of Castleton. That's where my wife and I live. There are not many trees over there, but we do have a couple of them in our front yard. Uh, I think they've been growing now for about six years, and I don't think I've seen a bird make a nest in either tree. Like, I just don't think they're going to trust those branches. I just think that puts a little bit of perspective on this mustard plant. In one season, it grows in excess of 10 feet, and it has the strength to be able to hold up under the weight of these nests, right? That's the idea. The kingdom of heaven, it starts small. It starts humbly. It starts almost imperceptibly. It starts in weakness, but it ends in power. And I think, think about why this would be so important for the disciples to hear. Again, because they were constantly thinking, when is the kingdom going to come? When's it going to be here? Like, when are you going to take the throne? When are you going to stomp out your enemies? When is all this going to happen? Even as we look at uh, the book of Acts, right? I mean, their question to Jesus as he departs to be with the Father is what? Will it be at this time now that you restore the kingdom to Israel? They're just constantly thinking about this. But what does Jesus do before this moment even comes? It's not going to be big like you think it is. It's going to be extremely small. The size of a mustard seed. And just think about everything that takes place. Think about the birth of Jesus, and it all makes sense, right? A stable with smelly animals, manure all around. A baby born in obscurity in a country with very little power. Think about Jesus growing up in Nazareth for 30 years of his life. There was nothing impressive about Nazareth. In fact, it was so unimpressive that Nathaniel says in John 1, verse 48, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
How would you like to have that reputation for your community? Maybe some of you have had that reaction. You've met someone from another state. They live someplace cool. I don't know, like hip and trendy like Los Angeles. And then they're like, you live in North Dakota? And then they do the, you guys have electricity, right? right? Nazareth, not a great reputation. Even seems like it's kind of shady. I don't know. So Jesus' birth is humble. The place he grows up is humble. And you think about the disciples. I mean, talk about an unlikely group, right? I love how John MacArthur put it. He says all of them together wouldn't have added up to a mustard seed. <laughs> what, a, what a compliment. So small, so inadequate, so inconsequential, so unqualified, so fearful, so faithless, so weak. A band of unlikely characters. Fishermen, tax collectors. But that's how the kingdom starts. And that's why it's a tiny seed. But it doesn't stay that way because to everyone's surprise, what happens, again, one day it's going to be absolutely enormous to the point that it will cover the entire globe. We've been reading in Daniel. We read about it this morning. We even heard it mentioned in chapter 7, didn't we? How there's going to be a kingdom established that's going to be everlasting. There's going to be a dominion that stretches out over all other kingdoms. Daniel also says this in chapter 2, verse 44. We're told God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Joel talks about a time when God will purge the earth of all evil. Psalm 2 describes a time when God will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Micah talks about a time when nations will say, they'll actually say this, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. What a beautiful day that will be when entire cities, entire communities, they just want to journey to Jerusalem and they want to go worship at the temple and they just, they just want to learn the word of God. So that's lesson two. The kingdom starts small but grows enormous. Now let's consider our last lesson, which is really going to be a short lesson because in many respects, it's a repeat of the second lesson. But here it is. Lesson three, the kingdom starts small but impacts everything. The kingdom starts small, but it impacts everything. Jesus says in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So in lesson one, there was a field. Lesson two, a mustard seed. And now here, leaven. So the illustration moves away from agriculture a bit. But again, it's a common illustration that people would have understood. And the point here is in many respects, it's the same as the second. Because just as the mustard seed begins small, so too the leaven seems quite insignificant. And yet it's used to infuse three measures of flour which was a huge amount of flour, enough to feed around 150 people. So it's a very sizable amount of dough. But it starts small, and it permeates a much larger entity. And we're told the kingdom of God will do the same, that this is how things will be with the kingdom. The kingdom 
will influence and impact absolutely everything. Every sphere of existence will be impacted by it. Many people today, they strive to Christianize politics and schools and sports and everything under the sun. One day, that will all actually be the case. One day, there will only be Christian leaders, Christian teachers, Christian ethics, Christian laws, Christian standards, because Jesus Christ himself, along with those he saves, will dwell in all the earth. When you think about this, we have to be amazed, because not only are civil spheres impacted by the work of Christ when he returns, but what more? All of creation. That's why we're told in Romans 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Christians, that's our hope. And that's the future we have to look forward to. So you have times of feeling like you're outnumbered. You have times of feeling like you're on the losing side of history. You have plenty of people who tell you you are on the losing side of history. But what are the facts? Nothing could be further from the truth. Because in the same way that Jesus Christ came years ago, he will come again, except for rather than coming to be a suffering servant, how will he come the second time? He will be that triumphant ruler and that powerful Messiah that we have been waiting for. And we have this hope because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for sinners. Praise God that he didn't come in judgment the first time or none of us would have hope. He came, he lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserved so that by repenting of our sin, by turning to him, by placing our faith in him, that we could have this great hope, that we could have eternal life, and that we could have the certainty and assurance that one day things will not be how they are now, but we will live in peace and perfect harmony under the rule and the reign of God. And won't that be a beautiful day when that comes? So hang on, Christians. Hang on. And don't just hang on, but press in because God wants to use you in this world. This is not an accident that we are living in the time and place in the days that we are. You live where you are, among the people that you do. You have the job you have, the family you have, all for a purpose, and it is to bring God as much glory as you possibly can with the time that you've been given. And so let's do that. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.